today entitled Context. And if you were here last Sunday, we kind of started uh, with the, the, the pre-series, right? It was sort of the unofficial opening of, the, uh, of this series. We looked last Sunday at God's Word, the whole topic of Scripture, um, where it came from, how God is the author of it, the value of it, the reliability of it. And uh, that was just sort of kind of the priming the pump for this brand new series starting today entitled Context. So here's what you can expect over the course of the summer uh, as we move through these remaining weeks of summer. We're going to be in this series for about seven or eight Sundays, seven or eight weeks. Most of those messages I'll be sharing, but there's going to be a couple of times where one message uh, in a few weeks from now, uh, Jason Gamble, our equipping pastor, is going to be uh, preaching that particular day. And then in a couple of weeks from now, uh, our worship pastor, Adam Howard, is going to be bringing the message for that particular day, all still in this same series entitled Context. And so I am really, really excited about this series. As I was preparing the message for today, uh, I just I felt like God had really uh, just sort of grew, grew me a little bit more even in my walk with him, helped me to see some things perhaps I had never really recognized before. And so already I've been challenged by the series and we're just getting started today. And so I hope you'll make plans to be here every single Sunday if you're in town. I know you travel a lot through the course of the summer, but plan to be here every Sunday. Bring somebody with you as well as we move through this series entitled Context. And I think it's going to be a real tool that God is going to use ultimately to help us to grow. So here's what you can expect as we move through this series. One, every Sunday we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture like we do typically. And that passage of Scripture is going to be beneficial. It's going to be helpful for you. Uh, just as we look at a passage every week, there's going to be something to pull out of that, something to apply. And so that's going to be one track, right? As a railroad car runs on a track with two rails, one rail is going to be, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture every single week as we're going to do today. But then the other rail is going to be that we're going to give some principles each Sunday that will help you to be a student of God's Word a little bit better. Here, here's the assumption, okay, that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've already given your life to Jesus, I'm going to assume that you want to read and understand His Word. Now, if you have no desire to dig into Scripture, if you have no, no desire to really know what God's thought is on certain things in life, then I'm not going to be a whole lot of help. This series isn't going to be a whole lot of help. I'll hope that you'll pray for God to kind of light a fire in your heart as a hunger for His Word. But if you have a desire to really understand what God's Word says and what He means in His Word, then that other rail is going to be that we're going to give some principles. I'm going to give you two today that hopefully will help you to be able to understand, to interpret, and to apply His Word better than you have before. And so that's going to be the goal of this. And we want to look at a passage of Scripture each week and apply it, and then at the same time learn how to study His Word better, which is going to help you in the long run to glean and to gain more out of the pages of Scripture. This is God's letter to you, right? This is God's Word to you, totally reliable, completely trustworthy. He wrote it for us to be able to live it, and so we want to be able to understand it clearly. That's what we're going to aim for through the course of this particular summer and uh, give you some tools along the way to be able to do that. So the title of the message is, or, or of the series is Context. Context is important. You understand this. You've learned this in your own lives. If you have, have ever walked into a conversation mid-sentence or midway through the conversation, somebody at work or maybe some family member, right, they're having a conversation on the phone or with someone else, and you walk in kind of midway, Maybe you've experienced kind of hearing something out of context that shocked you, and, and you heard a little snippet of something, and you went away thinking, wow, I, I didn't even know that was true. Wow, I didn't even know that person felt that way. I didn't know this, th th that had even happened. You heard something out of context that shocked you, but then later when you heard the whole story, when you heard the statement in its bigger context, then it made better sense. Maybe you weren't as shocked as you were before because you were able to hear it ultimately in context. Well, when we think about conversations, 
Whenever we think about being in conversation with other people, there are two components to every conversation that are extremely important. One is the, the component of truth. Right? When I have conversation with you, whether it's in a hallway, whether it's by phone, whether it's individually, whether it's me standing up here and, and uh, sharing a message every Sunday, whenever we have conversation, you have to know that what I'm telling you is the truth. Because if I'm not telling you the truth, if I'm just a liar, right, then you can't trust anything I say, and our conversation then begins to break down. One of the most important components of any conversation is that quality of truth. But there's a second important component of our conversation, and that second important component is context. There has to be a context that is understood to every statement that is made. If you hear me make a statement out of context, then there's a good opportunity or a good chance that you're going to misunderstand what I meant in the words that I spoke, right? We hear stories all the time in the news of athletes or celebrities or someone who's been interviewed and they make a statement and they get in trouble for it ultimately. And what is the response? Oh, you didn't understand the context in which I meant that. Context is so incredibly important. So here's how it applies, not just to our conversations, but whenever you pick up scripture and whenever you hold this, this book in your hand, this is 66 individual books starting with Gen uh, Genesis, ending with Revelation, 64 more in between of various lengths. When you hold this Bible in your hand and when you open it and when you read it for yourself, when you begin to study it, the same rules apply. This is God's conversation with you. This is his word, reliable, without error, to speak into your life. And whenever you open it, that important component of truth has to be there. Now, thankfully, God tells us in his word that he has inspired it, that it is without error, that it is true. We can trust it. But the second important component to conversation, context, well, that's up to us. We have to read his word in context in order to be able to understand what he means and to be able to apply it ultimately to our lives. Context is so incredibly, incredibly important. Here's what happens when we don't read scripture in context. Here's why this whole series is so important. Because if we take his word out of context, if we read a passage of scripture and we drag it kicking and screaming out of context, right? And we think it means one thing, but really it doesn't. What happens is, is that we can begin to believe something that is untrue. We can apply it wrongly. And there are whole entire denominations that exist that have taken verses out of God's word, out of context, and ultimately have moved into error as a result of it. So we have to be very, very careful that we read God's word in context. On one end of the spectrum, we will misunderstand it if we don't read it in context. At the other end of, a, of the spectrum, we will misapply it. So we have to learn how to read his word in context. In a lot of ways, your life depends on it. In a lot of ways, your future depends on it. In some ways, even your eternity depends on it. We have to read it in the context in which it was written. Now, understand for just a moment here, for the next couple of minutes, this is going to sound like a little bit of a seminary course for a moment. So you, you take notes through this if you need to, but you bear with me and you follow me because this is going to be important. Whenever we talk about reading God's word in context, there are a few different types of context that are important. One component of context is the historical context of Scripture. Let, let me give you an example of, of how this is important. You're familiar with the book of Jonah, right? Raise your hand if you've heard of Jonah. Okay, we'll start there. We'll set the bar really, really low. Okay, many of you have read through the book of Jonah. You know the story. 
God comes to Jonah, says, go to the people of Nineveh, proclaim to them that they need to repent. And uh, it, it's like a very, very short message. Tell them they got to repent. And uh, now's the time they need to do it. So Jonah, who is a prophet from Israel, ultimately runs from God. He heads one direction, literally, when he should have gone the other direction. God appoints a great big fish. Some people say it was a whale that never says it was a whale. But it was a huge fish that God appointed that swallowed Jonah up. Uh, a disobedient prophet was so sickening that even the fish couldn't keep him down. So he spits him up in chapter 3 in the book of Jonah on dry land. And then Jonah ultimately goes to the people of Nineveh, the Ninevites, and he proclaims the message God gave him to begin with. All right, So you can understand that. You can read the Bible. You can read that story and pull so much that's helpful out of that, that particular book of Scripture. But when you understand the historical context, and when you begin to understand that the people of Nineveh were enemies of Israel. They were hated enemies of Israel. And when you begin to understand why they were hated enemies of Israel, and when God said, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to the enemy, and I want you to tell them that they need to repent, and when they do, I'm going to show mercy on them, then it makes a little more sense of why Jonah says, ain't no way I'm going to be doing this. And why he rejected God's word wrongly, but he still did it. When you understand the historical context, man, that passage just explodes. And there are so many applications in our lives of how that relates to us. So historical context. This book is written in the context of history. In many ways, it speaks about historical events, historical people. And there's a historical context in which we read this book. There's also a literary context. There's historical context. There's literary context. In other words, when you read Scripture, it's not all the same. It's all inspired by God. You may read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those read almost like someone's biography. I mean, it's very easy to follow story after story. It just flows really well. They're called narratives. I mean, it just reads easily. But then you may go back to a book like Proverbs or the book of Psalms. Those are called wisdom literature. They read like poetry in a lot of ways. Prophecy is a whole different category, right? You get all these different literary genres, right? Or genres, if you want to sound classy when you say that, in which this book is written. And those are helpful in understanding the context of certain passages of Scripture. There's also a cultural context. A cultural context. There are things that I can say, if you've ever traveled internationally for business, or if you've ever traveled on a mission trip and you've had to speak through an interpreter, then you understand there is a cultural context that applies. I could go to Cuba. I could go to the Philippines. I could go to Mexico. I could go to Hungary. And I could speak. And I could give illustrations and examples. But there are certain illustrations and examples out of my life living in a Western context, living in this community, in this country, that would make absolutely no sense. You would understand it in a minute when I spoke it. But I can go to another country and speak that same illustration, tell that same story, and there would be nothing but blank stares, deer in the headlights. It would not connect. Why? Because there is a cultural context in which I would be speaking here as opposed to there. And the Bible has a cultural context. Whenever Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if anyone asks for your cloak, to give it. When he says that if anyone asks you to carry their stuff for a mile, he says go with them two miles. That whole second mile example is out of a cultural context. Israel was living under Roman rule in the first century. And a Roman, uh, 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 certain Roman personnel could come and basically make you carry their stuff. Jesus says if they tell you to carry it one mile, hey, you go further. You carry it two miles. There's a reason that he explains there. But there's a cultural context that his hearers would have immediately understood. 
So when we read Scripture, it doesn't mean we have to be theologians, seminary trained, but it's helpful. There are so many tools that help us to understand historical context and cultural context, literary context. But for most of us, the issue where we get mostly in the high grass, in the weeds, over the guardrail, where we misunderstand and misapply, is through something that I call passage context. It's reading a passage of Scripture in light of the verses that ultimately surround it. Reading a verse in light of the other verses that are around it. So let me give you the first little biblical interpretation tip, principle, whatever you want to call it. You'll see it on the overhead. You can jot it down. It's going to flow through this whole entire series. And the principle is this, that context determines meaning. When you read Scripture, if you want to be a real student of God's Word, if you want to read it accurately and understand it, listen, there are still going to be parts of it that are hard to understand. I, just, I, I know that. There are parts of the Bible that I really, really wrestle with. That if you were to ask me a question, I would have to say, you know what, let me go do some study and I'll get back to you. Right? This is the nature of the Bible. Most of it we can understand. Some of it is difficult. But it is so much easier to understand when we learn this principle that context determines meaning. Let me give you a little example of how not to do this. In the book, of, say for example, you're reading through the Bible. You do your quiet time this way. And I hope you don't. But let's just say you're doing your quiet time this way. It's the uh, kind of the poke method where you close your eyes, you flip through Scripture, and then you poke and say, all right, that's my verse for the day. Hopefully that's not your, the manner in which you do your quiet time. At least you're in the Bible, but it's not the best method. But let's just say you're doing it this way, and you read a passage out of Matthew 27 and verse 5 where it's talking about Jesus. Not Jesus, I'm sorry. It talks about Judas. And it says at the end of Matthew 27, verse 5, and Judas, he went away and hanged himself. All right? So let's say your eyes come to that place, you poke there, and that's the verse. You think, wow, that must be God's verse for me today. Not very encouraging, but I guess that's what he has in store for me. Let, let me just give it one more shot. And so you flip over again in your Bible, you poke down in Luke chapter 10, verse 37. At the end of that verse, it says, go and do the same. So you're, you're, that, that, that's not the way we want to study the Bible, okay? That is a classic example of reading the Bible out of context, okay? God would never tell you to go do that. But it is just a simple little comical expression and, and, and example that if we read it out of context, we're going to get in trouble eventually. And again, there have been whole denominations that have built certain beliefs around verses that they drag kicking and screaming against their will out of context. And they build this whole belief system around that particular verse. So you got to read it in context. Context determines meaning. But the second little principle I'll give you today, and there'll be more to come later in other messages, the second principle simply is this, that in order to read it in context, it's helpful to apply the 2020 rule. Apply the 2020 rule to help you read the Bible in context. Now, that is not original to me, to be honest. A few years ago, I don't remember when I preached, um, after I preached, someone here in the church sort of called me right down front here, and they shared with me, they said, you know what, uh, um, uh, I, I learned a little principle called the 2020 rule that teaches us, and I, it may have been Tony Johnson or somebody, I forget who it was exactly, but I've, I've heard it, I've remembered it ever since. They said that when you read a passage of Scripture, just go back 20 verses before and then 20 verses after, and that helps you to read that verse in context. I thought, what a great idea, the 2020 rule, right? You read a verse, and I'm going to demonstrate it here in just a second to some degree. You read a verse, but go back before it 20 verses, go after it 20 verses, and just read the whole thing. It'll give you a little bit more of a context. It's real important to do that. As I mentioned in the first service, when I told that story, I said, this idea was not original to me. I actually stole it from someone. 
And after the service was over, there was a guy in our service who called me after, and he said, you know what? If I were to walk in when you had said, I stole that from someone and didn't listen to that in context, I would have really thought differently about you, you know? So it was yet another example. Context is really important. Context determines meaning. So context determines meaning. Apply the 2020 rule to read a passage in context, all right? So that's the lesson part. We're done. Let's go ahead and dig into an actual verse of Scripture, and we're going to apply a couple of these things we've looked at. And again, the desire is not just to give you one rail of biblical interpretation principles, but the other rail is also to lay out a passage of Scripture that I hope will be a real challenge to your life like the goal is every single Sunday. So John chapter 14, verse 12 is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you really, really need one. Again, it's His letter to you. We'll give you a free one. We gave away one right before this service. We'll give one to you too. Stop by the lobby desk and say, I want a copy of God's Word to keep for myself, and they'll be glad to give you one. John chapter 14, verse 12. I'm going to read this verse, obviously. I'm not going to give you any context. I'm going to let you your mind go wherever it will. And then we're going to read it in the context in which it was written. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. All right, so that's the simple verse, John chapter 14, verse 12. Let me ask you a question. This is the audience participation part of the message, okay? This is where you get to play a part. It's a very brief part, so get ready. All right, you ready? So who is it that spoke these words in John 14, 12? Jesus, all right? The first service hesitated there. It made me wonder if I needed to go back a couple of years and catch them up, right? So these are Jesus' words. Maybe for you, the red letters on that page gave it away, but regardless of how you know, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking here. When we read this particular verse, what jumps out to me and what probably jumps out at many people is what I have chosen to highlight there, greater works than these. This is a shocking statement to read if we read it with a blank slate. Because what Jesus is saying here is that he himself is saying that for the person who believes in him, the understanding there would be not just an intellectual belief, but one who believes in me to the point of salvation. That for every single person who believes in me for salvation, in relationship, that when you look at all the works I've done, what did Jesus do in Scripture? We saw in the New Testament he did miracles, he healed people, he did all kinds of good deeds, right? List after list after list of the good deeds he did. He said that for the one who believes in me, he will do those things, but then he even raises the bar and he says, and even greater works than, de- than these that believer, that person will do. That is a shocking statement because there is no one, perhaps, at least as believers, who would disagree with the fact that Jesus is the greatest person who ever walked this earth. And here he is telling that all the believers who know him in relationship will do even greater works than he will do. Here's what often is the response, and it's one on one end of the spectrum and one on the other. If we read this verse out of context for what it says, your response, all right, if you're reading it with a blank slate, Your response is either at this end of the spectrum, total disbelief, like there is no way this could apply. I am never going to do anything to equal the Lord Jesus, right? I I don't believe what he says here, you know, I I just can't accept it. Or the other end of the spectrum, you're going to say, well, 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 this verse is all about me 
and the world is my slate, and I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever great deeds I can dream of, because after all, the Lord Jesus himself has said it. And then off you go, marching out in your own self-dependence, thinking that you have what it takes to do works that not just rival, but surpass the Lord Jesus Christ. One end of the spectrum, read it out of context, total disbelief, rejection of the Lord. Other end of the spectrum, read out of context, I can do anything I want. Jesus told me that it all depends on me. Both of those would be in error. Both of those would misunderstand that verse, that text, and both of those would lead to, lead to a misapplication of the text. So let's, let, let's, for all of us today, let's apply, in theory, the 2020 rule. I'm not going to read 40 verses all total, but in theory, because it's not about literally 20, right? Not that literal in regards to the principle. But we're going to back up and read what's before the passage, and we're going to look after so that we can read this passage in context. So let's move back to the very beginning of chapter 14, verse 1. So 11 verses before, chapter 14. Let's just start with verses 1 through 3. Here's the context in which Jesus spoke these words. He begins by saying in verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go, hang on to that phrase that I've highlighted, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now let me just pause there, because some would say Jesus is speaking of his impending crucifixion and resurrection. And certainly he did go away for three days, right? He was, he was crucified, he died, he was buried in the tomb, rose again three days later. However, I, I think that the bigger context here is after he ultimately leaves this earth and goes back to the Father. So Jesus is saying that the time will come, he's speaking to his disciples, when the time will come that he is going to depart this earth, he's going to leave this earth, and these disciples, most of them, would have actually seen that with their own eyes, and he will leave and ascend back to heaven to be there to the Father. We still await his return at the rapture. But there would be a time, and he says it right here, when he is going to leave this earth as we know it. He would not be here any longer for, for someone who is struggling to come to him and to look him in the eye and to hear his words spoken into their ears. He wouldn't be here physically any longer to come alongside of you and to put an arm around you and to tell you, you know what, have faith, it's going to be okay, here's what I'm up to. There would come a time when he would physically leave this earth and he would ascend back to the father if we move forward in this passage verses 4 through 11 we're not going to read them but in verses 4 through 11 he's talking about his unique relationship with the father and how he and the father are one how the father is the one who does his work through through christ on this earth in fact the question will be asked of jesus will show us the father and he would talk with his disciples about that we then get to verse 12 the verse for today it's there that he says truly truly i say to you that he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. It's a reference to him, again, ascending back to heaven. Well, I think it's the verses that come immediately following that help to kind of tie up all the loose ends. Look at what it says in verse, well, in verse 13 and 14, he's talking a bit about prayer. But look at what he says in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Remember, truth is an important context, or it's an important component of conversation. You have to have truth. The Holy Spirit, Jesus describes as the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Go on to the next slide. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. Because I live, you'll live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so in the context of this passage, Jesus is speaking here about the Holy Spirit. This is significant. What does he say about the Holy Spirit? Let's go back a slide to verse 15. And he says, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is our helper. The word there ultimately in the Greek language is the word paraclete. We only see it in the book of John and the book of 1 John. And the way it translates is literally as one who comes alongside of. He says the Holy Spirit will be the one who will come alongside of you. Elsewhere in Scripture, we understand the Holy Spirit to be God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit will be your helper. He's going to come alongside of you. He's going to walk with you. He will live within you as a believer forever. Right? He begins to describe that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, as Jesus was a visible demonstration of the reality of God, that the Holy Spirit today, after Jesus returns to heaven, is also uh, uh, enables the believer to put God on display in much the same way. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be checking out of this place. Oh, I'm going to come back again, and everybody's going to know who I am. But until that time, I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be there to put an arm around you. I'm not going to be there to whisper truth into your ear. I'm not going to be with you to walk through literally the valleys that you go through. However, I'm going to send the helper, and the helper, God himself, the Holy Spirit, is going to be able to do what I am not able to do physically in your presence. And there will never be a time for you, Christian, he says, where you can say that I'm outside of the presence of God. See, if, 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 if we only solely base God's presence in the physical uh, presence of Jesus today, we would have to say that God is not with us. Now, I know God is everywhere. I understand that. But if, if there was no Holy Spirit, we would have to say, you know what? Don't feel the presence of God because Jesus isn't right here in front of me. For the disciples, if they're on one side of the Jordan River, Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan River, they would, in a sense, have to say, you know what, God's not much right here with us. Yeah, he's, he's all around us, and but personally, he's, he's just not here. I mean, he's over on the other side of the river. See, when Jesus walked this earth, he was completely God but completely man. And the man side of him, 100% humanity, just like for you and me, was bound to only one place at a time. But when he left, and when he went back to the Father, and when he sent the Holy Spirit, and we read the start of that in Acts chapter 1, it continues till today. And when you prayed and you gave your life to Jesus, whether you were 6 years old, 8 years old, 12 years old, 50 years old, 90 years old, when you gave your life to Christ, the Bible promises that at that moment, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit took residence in your life. That's why you can't do the same sins you used to do without feeling a little bit of a nagging guilt over it. Because it's the Holy Spirit who convicts you to say, don't get off into that wilderness, come back to obedience where life can be found. And there is never a time in your life as a Christian where you can say adequately, no matter how deep the valley, how wide the chasm may feel, no matter how dark the night may seem, you never can accurately say, God is not with me as a Christian because he is always with you in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
when Jesus made this statement, he said, greater things than I've even done, you'll be able to do. And it doesn't mean that we can say, oh, look at what I am now. I must be able to go out and depend on myself and do all these great things. It doesn't say that at all. It means that the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives will accomplish the will of God, which is always, always significant and substantial. Never can I say, God, you've called me to this task, but I'm not equal to this task. I'm ill-equipped and I can't accomplish this, whatever you're calling me to do. We can't say that. We can't say, you know what, I just don't believe God can, God can use me. Why? Because he lives in our hearts as believers in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's never going to leave. He's with us forever. He is our helper, our advocate, the revealer of truth. He comes alongside of us and he accomplishes the will of the Father through our lives in a way that puts God on display. And when we begin to read this passage in the context in which it was written, man, it begins to gain a whole different meaning. In fact, look at what it says in verse 10. We don't have this on the overhead. But look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 10. This is really interesting. Jesus is speaking. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. Listen to what Jesus himself said. But the Father abiding in me does his works. The Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus, how do you do these things? How do you turn water into wine? How do you heal a man who's been, been blind from birth? How do, you, how do you heal the leper and make him completely clean? How do you raise three different people in the New Testament from the dead? How do you do this, Jesus? Oh, it's the Father doing his work through me. Oh, but Jesus, I thought you're God. Oh, I am God. So, so isn't it you that's doing these works? He says right here, it's the Father doing his works through me. Jesus checks out, moves back up to heaven. He's going to come back again one day. We're left here without his physical presence. He makes the statement in this same chapter that you're going to one day do greater works than, than even the ones that I've done. How are we going to do that, Jesus? Oh, because it's going to be the Holy Spirit, God himself, who's doing the works through you in the same way that the Father did those works through me. Oh, so you mean I've got what it takes for me to go out and just do all these great works in my own strength? No, I didn't say that at all. You've got to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's not about you. This book is never, this book is rarely about us. This book is almost always about God. Thankfully, we're part of the story, but it's about him as well. And so we come to that verse, John 14, verse 10. And Jesus says, and even greater works than these you will do. And it's completely reliable, and it's completely possible, not because of us, but because of him. The Holy Spirit, who lives his life out through us as we yield ourselves to him. By the way, listen to what it says in verse 25 and verse 26 of that same chapter. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Oh, but Brooks, that only applies to those early disciples. I think in verse 12, he says to those who don't believe. You see, when you look at a verse like that, I think it's a great reminder for us to read it in context. 23, a few verses before, a few verses after, so that we don't begin to doubt the truthfulness of Scripture, 
is so that we don't begin running down a trail that God never intended, misapplying that passage of Scripture, but rather read it in a way that really makes us a lot less and makes him a lot more. So let me ask you this question before I issue a little bit of a challenge. If you were to take inventory again of your life this morning, what is it that you can look at about your life, whether it be the changes that God has made in you or the works that you're able to engage in for the glory of God, service, ministry, whatever it may be, what can you point to in your life that you can only rightly say, hey, this didn't come by luck, this didn't come by chance, this didn't come by my hard work, this can only be attributed to God. Now, I know we can very easily and flippantly say, oh, to God be the glory, oh, God is the one who did it, but really, what is it of significance in your life that you can look to that if anyone ever asked, you could only rightly say, this is all because of God's grace. And if there's really nothing that you can point to, is it because you haven't taken him at his word? Is it because you've never given your life to Christ to begin with? Or is it because you've never come to the place to where you've been able to say, as a follower, Lord, here I am in my courts again. Today, would you do your work through me? Now, let me just give a caution. Significance doesn't mean large crowds or recognition. Significance may be touching a life because you struggle for it. Significance may be touching a life that no one else will ever see. And they may live under your own roof, or they may live under someone else's roof, or they may not even have a roof. So don't equate significance and greater things with wider audience and greater recognition. Significance is rooted in obedience to whatever God's calling is in your life and reaching out to others. You know, I think there's an, ap an application for us as a church as well. Because God has planted us in the midst of a community where the vast majority of people here do not have a relationship with God. And this community, neighborhoods are filled with people who, if they died today, would step into eternity without Christ. They work with you. They share a street with you. They share apartments with you. They may share a family table with you. And God has put us here as a church to be salt and light in this community, in this city, and beyond, to put them on display. We as a church can either say, you know what, we're going to hunker down, we're going to minister to ourselves, build a bubble around ourselves and only hang together and huddle, or we can say, God, the, the mission field is, is way over our heads, and we're not equal to the task except by your presence in us. And so here we are, use us, we pray. You know, it's the context of this verse, I think, that helps us to see that ministry and to see that life differently. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask four things of you over the course of this next week. They're going to be really simple, maybe a bit of a stretch, one specifically. But I'm going to ask these four things of you. I don't have them on the overhead. They're very, very easy to, to jot down. So I'm going to ask you to jot these down. First of all, this week, I'm going to ask you to apply the 2020 rule that we just talked about. Now, you can't do that unless you read the Bible. <laughs> You've probably figured that out by now, right? That's a sneaky little way to get to read Scripture, which shouldn't take sneakiness, right? It's God's letter to you. 
So apply the 2020 rule this week. Just begin to learn. You may use a devotion that just pulls out one verse, and that, that's okay. You just want to be careful that you understand it in context. And so begin to practice that. Build, build a routine of reading his word in context. When you read a verse of scripture, just back up 20 verses or so. Move forward 20 verses or so. Read it in context. That's very easy. Second thing I want to ask of you is to report for duty daily. It may be when you first get up, whatever your routine is, to take a part of the day and that very beginning part and say, God, I'm your creation. Lord, I've given my life to you through Christ. I'm also your child. And today I report for duty. I submit myself to you that your spirit might lead me and that you give me courage to follow. And that you, as you spend time in his word, you begin to live it out and to apply it and to follow his lead in your life. And his lead will never contradict what he has already said in his word. So you report for duty. You read his scripture, you read his word daily, apply that 2020 rule, report for duty. Number three, praise him publicly for what he does in your life. You are not bragging about yourself. You're not taking credit. If we understand that passage that I just shared in context, if we understand it, it's God who gets the credit. Hey, if, he's, if he does something to bless you this week, if he makes a change in your life, as you look back and think, you know what, I used to be an angry person, and now I'm realizing I, I don't get angry over the things I used to. God is changing me. I mean, praise him publicly. Put it on display. Don't take credit for it. Just say, you know what, God, God has done this in my life. God is working in my life. God gave me a great opportunity this week. Fill in the blanks, right? God, is the, God gave me a wonderful blessing this week. Here's what it looks like. You're not taking credit. Praise him publicly. That is an affirmation of the fact that whatever he does in your life is through his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. It's not us. And you're giving him the rightful credit for it. Praise him publicly. That may be social media. It may be to your family. It may be to a coworker or a friend. Praise him publicly. And then number four, this is the one where if you've got a brown paper bag, you might want to take it out. Because you may need to breathe into it for a moment just to calm yourself, okay? Here, here it is, all right? Memorize by next Sunday the passage we looked at. Not the 2020, all right? But the one passage, John chapter 14, verse 12. Memorize it. That's what I'm going to ask of you. And I know what you're thinking. I can't memorize nothing. But you got all kind of recipes floating around up here, right? You got all kind. You used to memorize everybody's phone numbers. Now we don't. I don't know anybody's number except my wife. That's about it. Everybody else, I got to look you up. But you can memorize a lot better than you think you can. Here's why this is important. Because remember Jesus made that comment at the end of chapter 14 in verse 25 and 26. He said the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance what you need. When we memorize God's word and we begin to hide it in our heart, you will be amazed when you go through a difficulty, when you go through a challenge, when you go through a time in your life where you need God's word. If you've locked it away in your heart and you've begun to memorize his word, you'll be amazed at how often he brings that passage back to your heart and to your memory. But if you've not memorized it and internalized it, listen, you were locked to his word. I don't say this negatively, but you were locked to his word with a chain. Meaning, if you don't have his word and it's not hidden in your heart, you are now distanced from his truth. And so begin to memorize his word. I'll tell you this. I have wandered far from memorizing scripture. And over these past week or two, God has really brought that back to my mind. And he's intensified in me a real passion for his word that I'm grateful for. Because I had begun to grow dry. Same thing happens to me that happens to you at times. And what I've done is I've started memorizing Scripture, giving it a shot. Jeremy Young will tell you that I'm like ancient and can't memorize anymore, but uh, don't listen to him. Um, he's out of town anyway this week. So, uh, But what I've got are a couple of cards in my pocket. One of them is the verse from today, if I can get a head start. And I'll give you a little bit of a tip. This will be helpful for you. I'll demonstrate it next week because I didn't think of it after we'd already done our media. I didn't think about this until after. So I'll try to remember to give a demonstration. But here's what you may want to do. 
on your index card on one side. I know you can all read this, right? Can you read this back there in the back for just a second? Um, it's the verse just written out. On the other side of the card is the reference, right? So you can't cheat. <laughs> so you, John 14, 12, other side is the verse written out. I use the New American Standard Bible, NASB. You use whatever translation you use. Well, Brooks, what's the best translation? The one that you will read. Okay, if you'll read King James, read King James. If you'll read New International Version, read the New International Version, as long as it's going to be God's Word. And you use the translation that you're going to use. For me, I use the New, International, or the New American Standard. But here's what I've done. One side, the, the verse. The other side, the reference, John 14, 12. And then underneath that, I've written the first letter of every word in that verse. Here's what it sounds like for me. John 14, 12. T comma T comma I S T Y comma H W B I M comma T W T I D comma H W D A semicolon A G W T T H W D semicolon B I G T T F period. That's my verse. I'm telling you, you try something similar, you write out that verse. I doubt many of you, if any, had that particular verse memorized. John 3.16 maybe and some other ones that are classics, but probably not that one. You write the first letter of every word with the punctuation. You read through that verse a few times, flip that card over, and see how much of that verse doesn't come back to your memory. You can memorize it. I'm telling you, you can. And when you begin to gain a little momentum and you're hiding God's word in your heart, six psalms says, there's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Because many of the promises are so familiar. But listen, what you possibly will begin to see is a hunger for more of his word beginning to intensify. And as you don't, as James says, as you don't become just a reader, but a doer of his word, leaning on the presence of his Holy Spirit, what you just may see are greater works than you ever even imagined God does in your life and through your life. As a believer, I don't know of anything that's worth keeping up for. And for those that perhaps have never given their life to Christ, Hey, the greatest difference, one of the greatest differences between the unbeliever and the believer is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Christian, you've got God within you. It doesn't make you a little God. You've got God within you who will never leave you or forsake you. But for the one who has never given their life to Christ, God has no obligation to you. He's made no promises that apply to you because there's no relationship. And his indwelling presence is not something that you will experience until you turn from sin yourself and invite him in to forgive you and to take you in. Let's pray. God, your word is precious. Through the centuries, people have died for the preservation of your word. They've died because they've stood in the truth of your word. And perhaps for some of us here in this room, we've known people, ministers, pastors, missionaries that have paid a very high price, believers as well, because of their obedience to what your word says. Lord, it's your word that lays for us the tracks to run on in our lives that lead us to you through a relationship with Christ as we place our faith in him, but that also lead us into a life that is fulfilling. Jesus, you said in John 10, 10, you are the way to an abundant life. And this word leads us to you. And so, Lord, there's really 
not just no excuse, but at the same time, there's so much loss and miss when we as your children don't spend time in the letter you wrote to us consistently. God, we want to understand it for the way it was written. And so help us to learn how to read it in context. It's that context that determines meaning. And when we read it in context, just backing up a little bit, 20 verses or so, and moving forward past it, 20 verses or so, it helps us in, in one way to read your word with the intent in which it was written. Knowing that your Holy Spirit who indwells us as Christians will give us the strength to apply it and to live it out in a way that honors you. And so God, help us to be students of your word. Work in us. It may start with a spark in someone whose heart is dry. It may be just a fuel in the flame for someone whose heart is already hungry for more of your word. But God, take us to another level, I pray. And may we as a church intensify in our work. May we as Christians go deeper and further in our walk because of what you accomplish in us when your spirit is partnered with your word in our lives. Of course, Lord, for the one who's never given their life to Christ, our greatest desire is that right where they sit today, that they pray the one prayer that will change everything, that they give their lives to Jesus, trusting in him, placing their faith in him, who has paid for their sin and risen again, to come in and take residence and take ownership of their lives. And so God, bless our decisions, we pray. We thank you for the challenge that you've put before us. Help us to answer the call, for it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand.